Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Uh, I'd just like to welcome you all here again to the Carter Center. Uh, I'm John Stremlaw, Vice President of the Peace Programs, and I'm joined in this conversation by Jennifer McCoy, the Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Georgia State and the Director of the Carter Center's Americas Program, and by Professor Margarita um, uh, Lopez Maya, who is the uh, titular professor at the Central University of Central Venezuela and a fellow currently at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Latin American Program in Washington, D.C. Um, I think that the two uh, uh, experts that we have on our panel tonight complement each other very well. Uh, Margarita has uh, spent a quarter of a century looking at contemporary Venezuelan history, political history, and sees the domestic uh, aspects of that, but now in Washington can look at the international. Jennifer, on the other hand, is a scholar primarily focused on regional international relations, foreign policy, comparative government, and so can bring to light those dimensions of Venezuelan politics that have become part of our international discourse as well. We are going to be talking among ourselves for 45 minutes, and then we'll take questions and answers from the audience. I'd like to have this conversation follow three broad topics, and I have told my colleagues uh, what I thought these were, and I think they agree. The first would be what's going on in Venezuela. Jennifer is just back from Venezuela yesterday, and the election which she was there for on the weekend, and to see what the aftermath of the Sunday vote is all about and to get Margarita's um, uh, comments on that. The second part of the discussion should talk about Venezuela's significance as a regional actor in the Andean group and in the Latin hemispheric context more broadly as well as international context. There's a story out just a moment ago that uh, Aminajad, the uh, head of state of Iran, is heading shortly to Caracas. So it gives you a reminder that Venezuela is a um, very important country beyond just the hemisphere. The third um, uh, uh, aspect of this conversation I really think should, should focus on so what for the United States. Uh, it is our fourth biggest uh, source of oil. We are their biggest commercial partner and the uh, volume of animosity that has marked uh, the relationship in recent years during the Chavez era is well known to all of us and widely covered in our own media. Uh, for the Americans, and most of you uh, are from here, although we've got a, uh, a hemispheric audience uh, in, in the media outlets, just to remind you, Venezuela is uh, on the northern uh, Atlantic coast of uh, Latin America with uh, uh, Guyana to the east and Brazil to the south and Colombia to the west. It's a big country that's uh, a third larger than Texas, twice the size of California with a population of 29 million people, slightly more than Texas. Its GNP of 400 billion is uh, one-third of Texas's, but it's about the size of the Georgia state economy for those of us from Georgia. Per capita is about uh, $11,000 a year, which means it's a lot poorer than the American per capita of 40. $7,000 a year, but it's a lot more successful country than most of the Carter Center countries of interest that I'll be talking about tomorrow that are in the bottom billion poorest countries uh, in the world. So it, it, with those just few uh, facts to uh, orient us, um, I'd like to begin our conversation, and I'd like to throw my colleagues a curveball. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but um, <laughs> The Economist magazine, which I'm sure many of you in this room read, 
uh, has a leader out for their current issue, uh, uh, which is going to, went to press, I gather, today. And it's titled, the leader is titled, Maduro's Lousy Start. Uh, it points out that six months ago, Chavez romped to a third term with a cushion of 11 percentage points. Uh, and the polls had predicted a much wider spread than, as you all know, um, uh, Maduro actually uh, won in the, in the final event on the 14th. Uh, what the economist then concludes, and I'll just give a, a couple of sentences here, the result demonstrates that without Chavez at the helm, Chavezismo, a noxious cocktail of populism, incompetence, and repression, is far less potent force. That is the good news. The bad news is Venezuela's already polarized society is now split down the middle and seething. The country could unravel unless Mr. Maduro steals, steers a responsible course. It is far from clear that he will. Now, in, in an hour, you're going to know more about this country than probably The Economist does or any of your neighbors. <laughs> Not to say that they can predict, but they're the best sources we have, and they're likely to be available. So with that as a starter, what's going on, Jennifer? <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Well, um, thanks, John, for <laughs> that, that big question. Um, you know, these the, the elections that happened on Sunday were... In, in the midst of a very significant moment for Venezuela because they have had one leader for 14 years who has been extremely uh, charismatic and a strong personalist leader and has really been the dominant personality and decision maker in the country for 14 years. So it's quite a, um, a shift to, uh, to now come to um, new leadership for the country, but it was also an emotional moment with Chavez's death because he had generated so much uh, loyalty and support among his followers who felt that, you know, and to add to sort of compliment what the economist said on the positive side, he really gave, I think, and we'll have to ask Margarita's opinion, um, identity and voice to a great number of Venezuelans who felt like they had not had that before, who had felt invisible. And, and when I talked to them, they tell me they had felt scorned and disrespected as well by um, the people who had been basically running the country before. So they felt that Chavez was a leader. So to lose him um, March 5th when he died of, of cancer was an emotional moment for the country. But that also meant that they were required constitutionally to hold elections very fast, within 30 days. So they scheduled the elections for April 14th, and uh, it was an intense campaign, a rather dirty campaign in terms of very negative, um, personalized attacks from one candidate to the other. Uh, the good thing for the candidates was that they were both well-known before because the person running to replace Chavez had actually been endorsed by Chavez um, as he became during his last illness in December. And he had been the vice president, and Chavez endorsed him and told his followers, this is the person you should vote for if something were to happen to me. And the, the opposing candidate had actually run against Chavez last uh, October and lost to him. And he lost uh, with 11 points difference, the, the percentage, 55 to 44%. And that was some of the predictions for this past Sunday was that uh, the government candidate, Nicolas Maduro, would win by perhaps up to 10 points. A lot of the public opinion polls had shown that before the election. 
And so I think one of the things that's, that's happening and that explains the current high level of tension in Venezuela is that it was a surprise result that the election was really close. And Maduro won. Uh, the election authorities declared him the winner, but with only 1.7% difference. And that's within the margin of error of a lot of the statistical predictions that uh, the parties do on the election night when they're projecting what the result will be. So that led the losing candidate, whose name is Enrique Capriles, to question the results. He did not reject them. He did not say there is fraud. He simply said, I want to look at this further and before I accept the results and, and acknowledge you know, my opponent as the winner. And what he did was say, <clears throat> I'd like to have an audit of the entire election system. And what that means in Venezuela is that they have electronic voting machines, like we do in many states in the United States. They're similar to the ones we use here in Georgia, for those of you from Georgia. It's a touchscreen voting machine. But it's even more automated than that, because they actually have, when you come in, you identify yourself as the voter with a thumbprint machine. So they, they're stored in a database, and you put your thumbprint in this little machine to identify yourself. And then the votes are actually transmitted by fiber optic cable to the central headquarters. So it's very fast. Um, so what does it mean to ask for uh, an investigation of that? They're using the term recount, uh, recounting the votes, but what that actually means is looking at the electronic tally sheet that this comes out of the machine and is printed. And uh, that is the official vote. That's the legal vote is what you cast in the machine. But they also have a paper receipt. And as you know, in the United States, having a paper trail has been um, a, a question of high debate in much of our elections, the demand to have a paper trail. In Georgia, here, we do not have a paper trail when we vote. In Venezuela, they have to get a little receipt. The voter looks at it, confirms, yes, that's how I voted, and puts it in a ballot box. Those receipts can then be counted later to just confirm or corroborate the electronic results. It doesn't mean that they have a legal basis to overturn it, but it can show if there's a discrepancy. So the losing candidate asked for a complete count of those paper receipts. And right now, they've put forward a formal claim to the election authority, and we're waiting to see how the election council will respond to that petition. In the meantime, there have been people in the streets demanding that this happen. There have been other people who are supporters of the um, Nicolas Maduro, who was proclaimed the president-elect, who are supporting him. And so there, it's high tension with the potential for violence, which we hope will not erupt into high violence. Margarita, were you surprised by the results? Um, well, I, I had heard that in the last days he was, he was growing, Enrique Capriles, the opposition. But how, how much was he going to grow in the last days of the campaign was very uncertain. I had the impression that the campaign of um, Nicolás Maduro was very bad. He, um, he tried to imitate President Chávez, and President Chávez, you cannot imitate him because he was so original that it was really very, you looked very grotesque in imitating him. And I think uh, that campaign was bad conceived. Uh, they, made a, they made a very great big effort to, to to transform Venice, uh, Hugo Chavez into a religious icon and to try to show that uh, first that uh, President Chavez was the incarnation of the popular sovereignty of the country 
and that that sovereignty now is going to be transferred to Maduro in, in, in some kind of imaginary religious thing. And um, many people may not know, but Nicolás Maduro isn't even a Catholic. And he went in campaign with the cross, uh, preaching like a priest and so on. And, and it, 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 when you're not sincere in what you're doing, I think it shows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think some of those things showed. And um, it was very surprising in a way because the participation bet in, between October the 7th when Chavez won and 14th of April when Maduro won is more or less the same average of participation. So the same amount of people that went out in October to vote for President Chavez went out again in April the 14th to vote for, for, Nicolás, for, for, for Nicolás Maduro or Capriles with the difference that at that time it was 11 points of difference and now it's just 1.7, which means that, mo that there was an important portion of Venezuelans that in October voted for Chavez and in April voted for Capriles, which is kind of surprising in such a polarized society and where you have for 14 years learned that you have to, or you love Chavez or you hate him. And then, of course, this is kind of a surprise to see that there are people that swing from one place to the other, even though apparently the, the, the political projects are contradictory, antagonistic among them, and that has been such a criminalization from one and the other. Uh, because in Venezuela, politics is a very polarized uh, politics where you are not an, a rival, you are an enemy that has to be annihilated. And, but the other thing I wanted to say what's going on in Venezuela is that, uh, as, as Jennifer has said, Venezuela has been going, undergoing a very deep transformation in the last 14 years. And that deep transformation has changed Venezuela in many, in many ways that, we, that us as Venezuelans do not really understand. Uh, we need a lot of research to know what is going on, what kind of society are we uh, after all these years of Chavez. And that in a way, when these things happen, you, you think, uh, what, what, what is going on? What kind of Venezuela is this? And of course, after, it, the, in the middle of this huge transformation was Hugo Chavez Frias, this personalistic leader, this man that controlled all the power, that took all the decisions, that uh, finished by subordinating all the public powers to his, to his grip. And all of a sudden, and surprisingly, two years ago, had a cancer. He wasn't that immortal as I think he thought until the last moment, and he died. And so the vacuum that is in Venezuela today is, is, is one of the things that worries <coughs> the most, because uh, he, in a way, it, nothing was prepared for that vacuum. He had decided and controlled all the situation, all this, and had taken all the decisions, and the people that surrounded him were kind of gray, because he didn't like anybody that were very intelligent or very clever next to him because he was the great leader. So when he, when, what he le leaves behind isn't the best of the best. I mean, these people haven't taken decisions in 14 years. They, don't, they relied on Chavez for, for the political analysis. They relied on him for the, str the strategies. And I think it, this, is this is being seen right now among Chavismo in the clumsy way they conducted the, 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 the campaign but most than everything, I think, in the way they reacted to the results the night of the 14th of April last Sunday.
So I think, yeah, I think, well, you can this is, stop This there. is exactly where I hope you might go because Jennifer has used the term, and I think it's in the packet, reading packets of, uh, of, of our participants here, an incomplete revolution. Mm -hmm. um, highly personalized but incomplete institutionally. Is that what it boils down to? And if so, what do we outsiders make of such terms as 21st century socialism, <laughs> Boulevardian revolution? Help us a little bit understand what we're dealing with here. Well, uh, yes, it's, um, it is incomplete because it, from the first place, uh, in Venezuela we have had two, like, two clear stages. The first administration of President Chavez was one thing, I believe, and the second administration of Chavez was something different. The first administration, uh, Chavez uh, launched a new constitution and the, the, Bolivarian, the, the constitution of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela that is still in, in, in place is, is, a, is a constitution that has a liberal democratic matrix. It still has its liberal institutions. It has its, the autonomy and independence of the public powers. It has the uh, political actors as, such as the political organizations. It has, it has the principles of pluralism, of alternability, it has all its all the liberal institutions that Venezuela had before the, before Chavez came into power, but that constitution brought in new forms of democracy in an intent to overcome the deficiencies of representative democracy in Venezuela, and it has mechanisms of direct democracy and it has uh, participatory institutions. But what happens in the second administration of President Chavez is that we move away from that constitution and we leave behind eroding and destroying the liberal institutions of representative democracy to build what President Chavez called the socialism of the 21st century. This socialism of the 21st century, many people try to understand what it is, and it is very difficult to understand because it was a very personal project of President Chavez. When he presented his constitutional reform in 2007, and it was defeated, he presented that constitution to the National Assembly as a personal proposal he had named a, a, a presidential commission to advise him, and he had asked this presidential commission to work in secret, to not give out to the Venezuelan people any ideas of what was going on in that commission, because he wanted to bring it to the National <coughs> Assembly as a personal proposal. And there he said, well, here I come. This is, my, this is written by my hand. And uh, this is personal. And I didn't really agree with everything of the Constitution of 1999, but I had to do it at that time, but now this is the, this is the one I really, I really agree with. That, that constitutional reform was defeated by the Venezuelan people. That was the, the, fir the first and only real defeat that President Chavez had. However, since by that time he controlled the public powers, there was a, an interpretation given by the Supreme Tribune of Justice in Venezuela that favored the possibility for him to continue advancing his proposal through laws. The, the, the Supreme Tribune said, well, you can't present exactly how the Constitution says. You cannot present another constitutional reform in this period. But it doesn't matter because you can present it through laws. <laughs> the, the same contents can be presented through laws in what was a very polemic interpretation of the, of the Constitution, of what the Constitution said. And in effect, today, there are many laws. Uh, we call them the socialist laws. Uh, that bring about the emergence of a new state. 
That is not the participatory state of the Constitution of 1999. This is what President Chavez in the official speech called a revolutionary democracy. And this is a, a, a communal state that, in difference of liberal uh, constitutions, does its base, its legitimation is not in the, in, in the individual and his civil and political rights, but in the collective and decisions taken in, the na in, 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 in assemblies, in communitarian assemblies, in communal, like in the communal councils, or in workers' assemblies, like in workers' councils. So the individual is uh, in second place in relation to the collective in the communal state that, is being built, that was being built by President Chavez. But of course, President Chavez dies, and everything was kind of in his head. And the, and the political will was mostly his great political will to advance this. And now, with the results of Sunday, this is, has been weakened. I mean, the, it, illegally it's there. It, it, they have tried to, uh, to, to begin to build it. Communal councils are already in place. The communal councils are units, territorial units, that, that don't have more than uh, 250 families and that they would be the first brick in the construction of a new state that would have communes and socialist cities. The communal councils have been, uh, there are more than 40,000 according to, to the official numbers, but the communes, they are very little, and nobody really, they're not really working, and the communal cities and all this, and nobody knows who is going to defend these, this new structure, because this, this structure is supposed to destroy or weaken until it falls apart the other territorial structure of the Constitution, which are the governorships and the mayoralities, the mayors, the territories of the municipalities and the territories of the governorships. And these people are elected by universal suffrage. The people of the communal councils are not elected. There's no universal suffrage because it's not a liberal uh, democracy. It's a socialist democracy. It's a direct democracy. Everything goes with your hand raised in assemblies. So now you have the governors here that have been elected, and you have this power that was so defended by President Chavez. Who's going to defend them when, the, say, President Maduro says, okay, now the money goes from the governors to the communes? Right now, uh, Chavismo uh, controls 20 of the 23 governorships, right? If it were Chavez, he would say, like he said, actually, those votes aren't yours. You were elected because I did the campaign. So you give out your money and give it to the communes, but Maduro can't say that. <laughs> so there is problems there that are going to happen in political problems that we think is going to weaken, make uncertain, or bring out something in the middle between what we had in the Constitution and what maybe President Chavez had in his head. <laughs> Jennifer, what do you make of this? I mean, you, what did the voters say? And, and what did your, you, you worked with the media for so long and, and, the, and the thought leaders down there. What, what were people saying? Well, you know, I think that there are a lot of people um, within the, the bases and who participate in these communal councils who are concerned that it won't keep going and that, you know, who, who believe in this new conception of democracy and want it to keep going and, are, and may be concerned that it won't be deepened or expanded up through the other levels that Margarita was, was talking about. Um, but there are others who want to defend, you know, as Margarita was saying, the, the, 
the traditional structure of the elected mayors and governors. But there's another part of the 21st century socialism, which is the more um, economic side, which was also... 20% inflation? Um, well, <laughs> yeah, there's that. There's that. But it is... It seems to me, it's a, again a little bit hard to define, but it's not, it's, it's never been, and, and Chavez never said it would be completely socialized economy. It would always be some form of mixed economy between private and public property ownership. But also he was introducing some new forms of you know, collective proper, um, property ownership and communal property ownership that were a little, never quite clear to me exactly. But, um, but there, was, there have been a lot of nationalizations of some foreign and um, local companies. But again, as I said, it's, it's, it's not completely socialized, and I doubt that it will keep going. Uh, right now, there, there are some economic uh, pressures on the country. There's the inflation that you mentioned, John, which now there are some predictions it will be even higher this year, maybe up to 30% inflation. Um, the they've, average they've yeah. In the last 10 years, the average has been 20%. Has been 20%. In although, the last 10 years. Although I will say the government's pointed out that in the 1990s it was even much higher. <laughs> 80, 100% during some <laughs> of those years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when oil was low. Yeah, because yeah. I think that in, in, in what it, in, it ends up to be that there was an, uh, an intent by the Venezuelan people to change the crisis of the 90s through new elites mm. and new proposals of democracy, institutions, mm -hmm. and so on. And at the end of 10, 14 years, we arrived again to the same place. We were like, we are still in the same crisis. The new elites really didn't perform enough to, to overcome. And we are more dependent on oil than ever. And so it's really it's like, we tried it to change and everything is more or less the same as before. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I, you, you've got me really puzzled here about where we're going to see this country go, <laughs> and, I, and I'm a little hesitant to move on to what the neighbors in the United States is saying. Um, oh, we can talk more about the, <laughs> where it's going to go, Well, <laughs> <laughs> what the options are. Uh, it, it would be helpful uh, because we're going to be following this. We've got the Carter Center, a, a real stake in Venezuela. We've been involved there, and President Carter's been involved there for, for 20, 25 years. It is hard to imagine how they're going to sort this out without leadership and without institutionalizing that leadership. So if we're back to the 90s, help us see a way forward. I mean, what does the crystal ball look like? Well, one of the things I wanted to explain that Margarita just, just referred to was um, is looking back before Chavez was elected. I mean, Venezuela is an oil state. It was a founder of OPEC, um, so has been you know, really reliant on oil since the 1930s, 1920s. Um, but it's... You know, so it had a big boom in the 1970s and then crash in the 1980s and volatility in the 1990s. And part of what led to this demand for real change that you were talking about, Margarita, I think, was the de social decomposition that happened as a result of this oil decline. And poverty rates rose from 25% in the 1970s with the oil booms to 65% in the 1990s, and that's a huge social dislocation for people. And people got very frustrated with the political parties and the leadership that they had in the 1990s. So poverty rising, inflation high, a lot of instability, 
and they basically rejected the traditional political parties that had been operating the country and voted the candidates in 1998, which were the first ones that the Carter Center mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, monitored as invited election observers, were all outsider candidates, independent candidates, new political movements or parties. And Chavez was one of several. He made the most radical proposals and the people voted for him with 54% of the vote. So he won. So they, they did want change. Um, I think at the time it just, it wasn't, they knew they wanted change. They liked his proposals for a new constitution. It wasn't entirely clear where he was going to go. And I think, I think he evolved his thinking along the way. It wasn't, you know, some big strategy in his head from the beginning, but he, he was a big reader and likes you know, to adopt new ideas, and I think he um, created his strategy along the way and adapted to challenges. Uh, so that's, to think about why it came in. Now, as, as you said, Margarita, it's um, one of the challenges for Venezuela has always been to diversify its economy away from just dependence on oil. Mm -hmm. It's been a long-term challenge. Um, this is part of the incomplete revolution that you were talking about. I think that, you know, it hasn't been accomplished now dependence is 93 or 95% of export earnings come from oil. Um, and the production uh, of oil has been rather stagnant um, for the last 10 years. And so this is another one of the constraints coming in the future. Does Caprilis have a vision? Well, his vision, what he presented in the campaign last August, last October, sorry, was to continue with the, the big welfare programs that. Uh, Chavez called missions, social missions. So this was for education, mm -hmm. literacy, um, employment, subsidized food, med medical care, lots of different um, housing. Uh, so he promised to continue with those, basically with a, a large welfare state, essentially, mm -hmm. which Venezuela's always had, but to, but to make them more efficient mm -hmm. and to protect more private property, to you know, stop nationalizing. Um, so, uh, and to review the sort of foreign aid that Venezuela has been giving out with oil diplomacy, with oil revenues um, to other countries as well. Uh, so it, was, it would be to have more of a traditional sort of uh, state-heavy mixed economy, I think, was his vision. But so this, this is the question now about where uh, Maduro will go, assuming that the complaints, the denouncements of uh, the opposition do not overturn the elections, if we just take that assumption for the moment. Um, Maduro, in his first speeches this week, has talked about continuing the revolution, deepening socialism, and following Chavez's path. But as I said, with the economic constraints he's facing, and as you said, with you know half of the population against, um, against that path from the vote, apparently, you know, it, we'll just have to see what are the options there. With, with the tensions rising, uh, President Carter was talking today about democracy and the spread in the world and pointed out that in Latin America, when the Carter Center was established, there were mostly military dictatorships. Now, the only authoritarian regime is left is, I guess, on the island of Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, could the military step in if the tensions become intense? Mm -hmm. It would seem like that would be unacceptable to the region, but what's your sense about that possibility? Well... You know that the, the, the Chavismo is an alliance of military with civilian. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it also is uh, peculiar in that sense. 
the party has always been a party, the different parties that Chavez founded during his time of life, that were three, uh, were always considered an alliance, a military and civilian alliance. That is to say that um, he has governed with the military. And as the time went by, and especially after the confrontations that he had to face with the opposition during his first administration that included a coup d'etat where he, 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 was, he survived and, it, and then it was an oil strike and he came out of that okay. And then it was the, the presidential recall where the Santo Carta was and he came out triumphant of that, all that. But the, the, the truth is that this, I think, made a big difference in Chavez's proposals to the country in his character as a person, and so on. And, and the military began to be more and more heavy, uh, have more presence, more visibility, and more influence in his government. So to say that the military will walk in, I think there's going to be more military, because Maduro is not Chavez. And the country is very, it's in a lot of trouble, very conflictive. The average of a street protest daily has grown. I have been following the, uh, the street protests in Venezuela since the 90s, when the crisis began to unfold into a political crisis. And I used, was amazed at the idea that the average of protests in the street at that time was three protests daily. Well, today it's 15. So you can imagine this is a country that lives in, in big uh, conflict. Viol social violence is very strong, too. Uh, we have a, 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 an average of homicides per 100,000 inhabitants, one of the highest in Latin America. And Caracas is, one of, is the most dangerous capital of, of, of the region. All this, in a way, uh, Chavez or hided it with his enchantment or uh, could control some of these things. And Maduro is not Chavez. So I think that we will see more military in the regime, more presence of the military. I don't think they need to do a coup d'etat. I'm not sure. Maybe they would have to, but it wouldn't be. And then we go into the other, the other questions. How, how would the, how would the inter-American countries, the American, Latin American countries react to something like that? But I have the impression that they can give in more and more weight to the military with a civilian as head of state. Because, yeah, I think that the government of Venezuela is a very militaristic government. It's not that it's a, it's a government of the military, but it works as if it were a military regime. Like to say, it, daily routines in Venezuela have practically disappeared. We have an election and they stop school for seven days. We need to take a, a, a IDs and then they do military operations emergency. And then everybody has, goes on the line and takes out the, this, the, the identification cards. If you need a vaccination, then the military go out and they vaccine on such and such a day. We have this kind of militaristic life today and where the, the daily routines are disregarded. The civilian life is kind of disregarded. So uh, I think that we'll, we're going to see more and more like that because that's the way the regime functions. Because when you're in a revolution, it's not supposed to be a, a daily routine either. It's supposed to be extraordinary things happening every day, you know? And that's a bit the sense that you have in, in Venezuela. And I, sometimes I think now with the results of Sunday that maybe the Venezuelans begin to be tired of this, of this extraordinary life all, all every, every day, you know? And 
fighting these big <laughs> phantoms and these big uh, enemies and so on. And maybe they really want the children to go to school and they begin to want to, you know, to have a regular job like everybody else and, and do your little money and go to the beach, <laughs> you know, more or less. So, but I'm not sure that, the, that a coup would happen. But I, you, you don't know. Well, and you, yeah, and you, you referred, you, you referred to the tomorrow it happens and boom. You referred to the nervousness of the neighbors about something like that. The neighbors rushed to endorse Maduro's victory. I mean, all of Latin America is one voice here. We can talk about the American questioning or the Canadian questioning, but let's stay on, 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 on Venezuela in the Andean and, and hemispheric communities. Chavez was very active in foreign policy. You uh, worked a lot on this. You had a friends group down there uh, to show the interest in Venezuela, Jennifer. Uh, talk a little bit about um, what might be behind the rush to embrace Maduro uh, by the uh, neighbors and also how the neighbors are going to try to adapt and do we have any sense of where that's going? Yeah, I think that's a really um, good question. Chavez was, his personality did not only dominate inside Venezuela, but had a lot of resonance outside as well, both in um, the alliances that he built and the people that were outside uh, who also felt sort of represented by his voice and his vision. Uh, but on the other hand, he was confrontational, not only inside but outside, and so there was a lot of conflict too with other countries, uh, the U.S. being one of the primary ones but not the only one. Within uh, Latin America, there's been a whole movement to have greater integration of South America especially over the last few years. Chavez endorsed this. He was not the first promoter of this, though, and was not the only, and so this will definitely continue without him. But, uh, but, but there is this move for greater integration, and uh, there's growing trade and investment ties, commercial ties, too, with the other countries, and so there's a lot of interest in stability in Venezuela among the other countries, and they want to see stability. Um, and, so, and they want to have good, good relations. Uh, some other countries have, as I said, received actually quite a bit of um, foreign aid or investment mm -hmm. from Venezuela as well. So, but the other part of it is just the legal part. I think that, that the countries recognize them because they recognize mm -hmm. you know, the vote um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that he won according to the Electoral Council. And, you know, unless, as I said, the complaint that's been filed shows some evidence of not, there would, you know, they view it as having no reason not to, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. to recognize it as well. But just on the military coup question, I wanted to say I, I uh, agree with Margarita that I do not expect to see a military coup, in part because there is a very strong norm in the region now and in the hemisphere against military coups. Mm -hmm. We do have the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And the other instances, the recent uh, instances, 2009 in Honduras, Venezuela, along with the other countries in South America, came out very strongly against that coup in Honduras. There was a kind of a police protest and uprising in Ecuador uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but it, wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say it was a coup or a coup attempt, but there was a strong reaction to protect the president there too. So I think that it would be um, surprising to see an outright military coup. Yeah, as you said, it's more it's more of a joint of, of this alliance, military yeah. civic, and they you know, do, governing. They'll have more weight or less weight, but I mean they're there. They're 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 in power. <laughs> it's not that they're not in power. They're they're. 
No. The, 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 the way you described the neighbor's attitude was a positive one toward cooperation and integration in the Boulevardian tradition. And there, by the way, there's an opinion piece in the New York Times today by uh, Marie uh, Arama, the, the, new, the book she's written about Boulevard, and it's the go-to mm -hmm. hero in Latin America. And so the, the, invoking the Boulevardian tradition is a source of legitimacy, I guess, and yeah. positive. But we, in sitting here in the United States, often look upon these voices as being anti-American, not pro cooperation. So you might sort of begin to segue us in, because we've only got about 10 more minutes before we get a question and answers. The United States was, was sort of calling for a recount and, and then was condemned for that by Maduro, and apparently the rush to recognize his victory might be interpreted as a response to that as well. So why don't you put the um, America into the mix here a bit, if you wouldn't mind. Well, um, one of the things I usually say to, to people to help understand, too, is that part of uh, Chavez's goals when he first came into power were not only to transform Venezuela, but to transform the world uh, power structure, the global power structure. He was very, it was very important to him to move from a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. as the single superpower to a more of a multipolar world or multi with, you know, power more shared. And so that was one of his ambitions and goal, foreign policy goals was to build alliances, particularly among the global south, among developing countries in the southern part of the hemisphere. But as he did that, he was also um, sort of provoking the United States, I think, in, in some part by building alliances with countries that were unfriendly or considered pariahs by the United States. And so he did also, you know, enjoy and build personal relationships with people like Gaddafi in Libya and Iran. Hussein in Iraq and, and still has, you know, Venezuela has a strong relationship mm -hmm. with uh, Ahmadinejad in, in Iran, mm -hmm. uh, Belarus and, uh, and Russia and China, of course, as well. So, so that's, that was part of the foreign policy. Um, so with the U.S., there has been and continues to be a strong anti-imperialist message. So it is part of this larger goal of just trying to, you know, balance out power from the U.S. But then there's also been this personal sort of nationalist language um, against the U.S. And so there were a lot of attacks during the campaign against Enrique Capriles as being a puppet of the, of the, of imperialism and, you know, having too close of ties to the U.S. And this is, so this is used in, in political ways, in political, you know, and, and there are a lot of elections in Venezuela, so it's used during electoral campaigns and it comes up quite a bit. Uh, but also as part of the structural foreign policy goals. The irony throughout has been this mutual dependence of the U.S. and Venezuela in the oil trade. Mm -hmm. And even though there has been for 14 years tension and a lot of insults going back and forth and several times when <laughs> both sides have <laughs> ambassadors moving in and out and have recalled their ambassadors. <laughs> we know several of those. Um, oil trade has never been interrupted, mm -hmm. not once, or threatened. And as you pointed out, John, at the beginning, uh, it's about 10% of U.S. imported oil comes from Venezuela, our fourth or fifth largest source of, of oil. Uh, which is down some. It used to be 15% in the 1990s, so it's, it's down some. For Venezuela, they have worked to diversify their oil partners. So the U.S. is still the most important partner, but whereas it used to 
by about 60% of Venezuela's exports, now it's down to about 40%. And so the government, the Chavez government, tried to diversify and as selling more to China, for example, uh, as well as others. Yeah, the, the, they have tried to do it with not too much success. They have a lot of problems with uh, selling oil to other countries, among other things, because the other countries don't pay back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so most, the mm. ones that pay are the Americans. And so this is more or less difficult to it. But you know, that, I think that, I've I, I thought about that, that the complexities of power and the discourse it's so important. We haven't talked about the polarization in Venezuela and the, the, the dichotomic speech that has been so important in Chavez's era. The, we are the good guys, they are the bad guys. And we have good guys inside and bad guys inside, and we have bad guys outside, and we have to fight against those bad guys. And of course, the United States is the bad guy, but it's long. So, so um, but that is one thing. And the other thing is that we do business with the United States. It's very contradictory, but. It, it serves what, politics, I think. It serves politics. It gives, uh, uh, it puts him in the left, sometimes in the extreme left. It gives cohesion to his bases. Uh, politics, uh, as we say in, in political theory of populism, you have to simplify so that the masses can, can be included and be politicized. And that's a good way of politicization. You know, these are the bad, and it's very simple. You can understand what's going on because they're bad and we're good, you know. And, um, and I think it, it serves well politics, and it, and it is a very long left-wing tradition in Latin America, this anti-imperialism. I must say that, that, that Chavez, in his first administration, was not so stark as he was in his second administration. Mm -hmm. And that, as I said, I think the coup and the oil strike hit him very hard. And he, let's say, it, it left a mark on him in his way he did politics. And one of the things that he did that was, that was very, uh, I think, important for him was the way the United States reacted to that coup d'etat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, okay. that deepened his uh, distrust to the United States. Well, we States. should just explain that a bit. The United States yes. basically applauded the coup yes. against them. We don't like coups unless they're against people we don't like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <coughs> yes, they were very fast to, 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 to recognize, to the, recognize the, 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 the de facto government of Carmona. And, uh, and as, a, as, a, as a matter, Chavez did not talk too much about that, only some months later. But the distrust that, that arose from him, I think, was very marked. Distrust not only for the U.S., but the U.S. was one of the main, main sources of his distrust after that. And then, of course, he, this made him be more approached nearer to Fidel Castro, the, who he always admired. But then he relied more on Cuba, too. He, he became more and more nearer openly to Fidel. And, uh, and of course, the anti-imperialist speech per, per excelencia is, is, is Fidel so, so. I mean, he followed, he has followed Fidel Castro and some, and that and other things too. But Maduna has, has reacted very promptly to the U.S. call for a recount and, and get off our back, this is our internal affairs. And, 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 and Secretary of State Kerry made the same point. We'd like to see the, the, the vote recount. Is that setting a shot against, acro across his bow? Uh, that, that is to say, the United States is signaling to Maduno that he's still viewed as a Chavadista here, and therefore we're going to be very hesitant to have the kind of thawing relationship that I thought, I'm, where I'm going on this is, what do you think the Obama administration is doing about this, Jennifer? Because um, there seemed to be a thawing in the relationship mm -hmm. before Chavez died, or was heading in that direction, and sort of 
somewhat related to that is, is will the relationship with Cuba that means this heavy subsidization of oil going to continue now that Chavez is gone and the favoritism that he's been non-economic decisions of, of giving away at low cost oil to the rest of the friends. Well, I'll start with the U.S. and you can talk about Cuba. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, there was a there was a thawing after the October election. Mm. Um, there there were uh, conversations that were made public by both sides between the U.S. and and um, and Venezuela. And in fact, directly with Nicolas Maduro, who was foreign uh, foreign minister and then vice president during mm -hmm. that time mm -hmm. period. Uh, so it looked like there there was an interest on both sides to to improve the relationship and eventually to exchange ambassadors again and primarily to talk about issues of mutual interest, which are not only the oil trade, but but also um, the U.S. was particularly interested in talking about counter-narcotics mm -hmm. and, and uh, controlling uh, drug trafficking. Venezuela does not produce drugs, but the concern about trafficking through uh, Venezuela, uh, other kinds of counter-terrorist and security uh, issues. So um, that was put on hold, that was put on ice, I would say, uh, particularly during the campaign. As, as we've said, during the campaign, it's, it's uh, more politically fruitful, I think, from the Chavista movement point of view to bash the United States. And so uh, they did put, uh, they formally put on hold those possible discussions because of some remarks that came out of the United States State Department during the campaign that they considered to be interventionist. When the election results were so close and the opposition was calling for this um, audit of 100% of the voting uh, machines afterwards, the U.S. came on board and supported that strongly, as did Spain, um, as did the European Union, actually. Um, and interestingly enough, it was the U.S. and Spain who, after the coup in 2002, were the most um, mm -hmm. outspoken in favor of the coup or in favor of the change in government at the time. And so again, so the Venezuelans were all already sensitive to this and again, considered that to be very uh, interventionist. Okay. A, a word about Cuba and another sea country, what about China? <laughs> well, let's see what I can do. Um, Cuba, well, as I said, it, 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 it is a very close relationship. Uh, President Chavez admired Fidel Castro, undoubtedly. I mean, it was a genuine admiration as a, as a, as a son of Fidel. And, uh, and the truth is that, uh, that there have been many policies that have been going in co collaboration between Cuba and Venezuela. We have, according to official, more or less official figures, around 30,000 professional Cubans in Venezuela working in health, in the health and education. But what is more polemic is that they also work in intelligence services and in the military. So um, what is going to happen now that um, President Chavez died? Well, I think it will continue with Maduro, that relationship, because it was it's something very, very important for this uh, socialism that they wanted to build, not only with Cuba, but with the ALBA countries, mm -hmm. and Nicaragua, especially too, and Bolivia, and um, yes. But I think since Venezuela has problems, is heading towards economic problems. Well, it already has economic problems, but it, they look as though they're going to get worse. Death has grown. The domestic death and, and international death has not grown so much because it is very expensive for Venezuela. The rates in, for credits are very high. 
So I think that politically it's, it's easier for Venezuela to cut some of the collaborations outside than to do them inside. And so when they begin the cuts, uh, the budget cuts, I think some of those cuts will begin with some, uh, with some neighbors and then will go into the Alba countries if it has to happen. I think that is probably what uh, I would say in, in the middle term. And of course, Cuba would be one of the last ones to be affected. But I think that politically, it is, it, that doesn't affect elections to cut a refinery that you were going to do in Nicaragua or, or a school that you were going to do in Paraguay. No? So I think probably that's where the cuts, the budget cuts were go are going to begin. As to China, well, that is, that is a, a relation that is difficult because uh, not so much information is out. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese have been going into many enterprises in Venezuela, but they were much more interested in the oil. They have, we have, a, they have a fund, they have given a lot of credit to Venezuela uh, in exchange for selling of oil in the future. And the compromises are beginning to be pretty hard in the, in the next years. Some say, I, I have read, some say that it will imply maybe to reduce the exports to the U.S. in order to fulfill the comp commitments we have with China. I really i am not an, an expert in that, so I don't know. But um, it's so opaque, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's so hidden to the public, the kinds of agreements that Chavez sometimes would sign. And also, you know, it, one of the, the elements of the Chavez administration is that in terms of professionalism, they weren't that good. So uh, maybe in these negotiations, one has, the, one has the idea that maybe those contracts weren't so good for Venezuela because um, I, I do have some information of uh, some contracts that were signed against the will of ministers and things like that because Chavez would put the political be, be, before then the, 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 the requirements of the, the contract. Well, th thank you, and I do want to ask our audience if they would like to uh, join this discussion, that there are two microphones up there. Would you um, please identify yourself when you ask your question, and you can get in line there, and don't walk quite so quickly, because while you come up to the microphone, I wanted to say that the Associated Press... No, no, please, please, come up to the microphone. <laughs> I wanted to get a quick Hello. question in from the Associated Press. Our, uh, we we're always friends of the Fourth Estate, and I was going to say that while um, you're thinking about your questions and lining up, um, they, they submitted a question, was there adequate international monitoring of this election to say whether Caprilis claimed that the election was stolen, had merit or not, Jennifer? Well, and you're not supposed to pass judgment on the overall quality of the election because we weren't on an observation mission. Um, were. I think th there were no international observers is the, is the first answer, um, the short answer to that. Um, Venezuela did invite international observation Witnesses? from... No, I would say from 1998 to 2006, the first time when I mentioned that we went, uh, and also the OAS, Organization of American States, went then, 1998, up through the series of elections until the 2006 presidential election. After that, they decided not to invite international observers anymore uh, for two reasons, basically, is what they have explained to me. One is that they felt like international observers are invited when there is distrust in a country or great uncertainty, but particularly distrust between political parties or between political parties and the government, or after a civil war or um, 
after civil conflict or coming out of a military regime. So they felt like they'd had that uncertainty and distrust, but by, by after the 2006 elections that they had built up enough confidence with the political parties through consultations on participating in the audits of the voting machines and all of this process that they no longer needed to invite internationals to come to give this kind of confidence to the process. The other reason they've told me is that um, there's no reciprocity among the people who are kind of pushing international observation, which are the U.S. Like the Carter Center. <laughs> Not the Carter Center, <laughs> but the U.S. and Europe. That They don't invite South Americans to go and observe their elections, so why should there be reciprocation? And I would also point out some of the larger South American countries like Brazil and Argentina uh, do not normally invite international observation either. So what they did instead was they invited international accompaniment. And for this particular election, for the first time, we accepted this invitation to go as international accompaniment. But that is more to witness the election, to sort of show support for the Venezuelan people as they go through the process, to learn about the process. It is not to give an overall evaluation or to bring a large team to give a comprehensive and systematic evaluation of the entire process. International accompaniment mainly goes for election day, but doesn't have the, the ability to evaluate or assess the campaign conditions, for example, which have been highly controversial, or um, the opposition's main complaint is how unequal it is, they are in, in the campaign conditions and access to finance and access to the media, and, uh, or things like the voters list. Therefore, we really need to rely on the national observers, and there are important national observer groups, and we're waiting, they're compiling their information now, so that's an important source to look at to evaluate the claims, as well as the opposition group, the coalition behind Enrique Capriles himself, who are collecting the information from their own wit party witnesses who are in each voting place. And so we really need that information mm -hmm. before we can evaluate. And, and your impression these is they claims. were able to operate without intimidation. They, they For the most part, they both both the national observers and the opposition parties did report that their um, observers and witnesses were intimidated in some of the places. I, I think most of the reports were around six to ten percent of the polling. Thank you. Places. That was that was the AP's second question. So I've got that taken care of. Now, please, <laughs> you you uh, are the first to ask a question of our panel. Hello, my name is Amber, and I have two questions for our panelists. Um, one is, which candidate did the people prefer? Not the political class, but the civil servants and working class people. Which candidate did they lean towards? And my second is, after things simmer down a bit, has there been any consideration with intermingling a popular American singer with a popular Venezuelan singer to produce a few songs to help with relations outside the political realm and to soften any negative outlook of our democracy? I didn't get the second one. Whoops. You mean, I didn't either. Has there been, is there somebody in Has, has anybody considered maybe uh, uh, getting one of our popular singers uh, with okay. Venezuela's so that it softens, you know, the just the public's, it, you mm -hmm. know, have a popular song that kind of gets them to understand where we're coming Instead from. Instead of ping democracy. pong diplomacy, right. singing yeah. diplomacy. Yeah, like music's a, a great idea. healer. It's so. difficult, we don't know. <laughs> Do you want to take several or go one by one? Uh, I, let's take one quickly. And oh, well, about the, an initiative of that, I, I think it's, it's welcome, wherever it is, but um, I don't know if it's happening. I really don't know. 
Uh, before we have done, there have been several efforts to try to depolarize Venezuela, to try to, with uh, baseball games, uh, where youth come together of different uh, teams, of different parts. Uh, of, you know, polarization in Venezuela is very territorial too. It was in the past. Now it's it, probably the gap is closing because now it, the match is almost 50-50, which means that the opposition now has important influence in the poor sectors too. Because in Venezuela, upper class and middle class is about 20%. So now that, uh, that Capriles is, has gone up to almost 50%, this means that, that now the, the opposition has been able to get mm -hmm. into the lower classes, the workers, the, the, the poorest classes in Venezuela. So uh, we would have to see how the numbers come out in the next days, how the polarization is, um, is behaving. In, in, in past elections, it was very clear those uh, cities, the, the, the uh, areas of the cities where the poor live, and you can, and, and usually there are some parishes, some municipalities where, where the residents are mainly of the poor sectors and others that are middle class and upper class, the polarization is very clear. Uh, sometimes it's like a mirror. And like for example, in Caracas, if you go to a parish called um, Antimano, uh, where maybe 85% are poor, well, Chavez wins overwhelmingly. If you go to Chacao, where upper and middle class live, uh, country club, Altamira, and so on, well, the opposition wins 85%. And it's like a mirror. You can even, it's just the other way around, with the difference that maybe in Antimano you have 400,000 people, and in Chacao you have 50,000. No? <laughs> so that's why Chavez would always win. <laughs> because even if there were some parishes where the opposition always won, it was always smaller because middle and upper classes in Venezuela is about 20%, more or less. Thank you, let's go over here. Uh, my name's William Sloan, I'm Pensacola, Florida. Uh, I'm a supporter of a watchdog group in Washington called the School of the Americas Watch. Uh, the, what it watches is the Army's school at Fort Benning, Georgia, called the School of the Americas, has another name now. Um, this school, since 1946, has trained about 60,000 Latin American soldiers, some of them from Venezuela, um, in intimidation terrorist techniques. And um, Latin America is widely known as the uh, La Escuela de Asesinos, School of the Assassins. Um, graduates of this school, not working directly for the USA, but uh, uh, certainly trained at this school at Fort Benning, uh, were principals in the 2002 coup. And I'm wondering if you have any comments on, uh, on the effect of US-trained, um, literally, terrorists, anti-insurrectionists in uh, uh, in the Venezuelan affairs or any other affairs or um, not just School of the America graduates but any uh, American uh, involvement. I think there, you know, that, that was definitely a, a very large concern particularly in the Central American um, civil wars uh, in the 
80s were uh, people who had been trained at the school that you're talking about. Um, have, you know, a lot of people ma made a link between the training and then their actions when they went back to the to their countries in terms of being repressive and, and human rights abuses, um, as well as some of the, the military dictatorships in South America. Um, in Venezuela, they, you know, I, I don't know exactly when that kind of relationship may have been cut off under Chavez, but I'm sure that there has not been that kind of training um, no, relationship left. since they left the country. at least they, they were 2000. The country about, about, about 2000 or no, or was it not no, till later? After the later, I think it was later. Yeah. 2000. It was after during the, the first administration, but yeah. I, can't, I can't recall when it was. I can't either. Yeah. So about 2000. So there, there certainly wouldn't be any any. Um, Recent training, but I think that you know that was a con mainly, especially a concern when the militaries were in government in the 1970s and and 80s, and perhaps less of a of a concern now that the civilians are in charge. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Martha Dalton with WABE Radio here in Atlanta, and I have actually a two-part question as well. Um, one is that I've been talking to um, Venezuelan nationals who live in the Atlanta area, and they're obviously pretty pro-Caprilis, but um, they, they are pretty convinced, there seems to be some consensus that um, if Maduro is sworn in and takes office, that within two years the Constitution would allow for a referendum, and they're pretty convinced that that would take place, the opposition would, would um, pursue a referendum, yeah. and they're they're also pretty convinced that he would eventually, he would sort of be drawn out of power. I mean, do you have any opinion on that, first of all? And, um, and secondly, with Capriles being um, a governor of a state right now, um, could his, the fact that he has asked for a recount, um, could that sort of end up hurting him if Maduro is sworn in? Um, could he seek retribution? Yes, yes, okay. Um, well, yes, we, in, in the Constitution of 1999 allows a, a presidential recall at midterm of the president. If the people can uh, recollect signatures, uh, I think it's 20% of, of the electoral uh, registration, mm -hmm. and then uh, we, we can, we, they have the right, we have the right to, to call for a presidential recall. To win the presidential recall, you have to have one vote more than the one, the votes with which he was elected. So because he was elected with such a narrow uh, difference with Capriles, of course the opposition thinks that it's, it's in the corner, in the next corner they think they probably will be able in three years time to obtain that number of votes, something that nobody thought with President Chavez after the presidential recall of 2004 because he, he started to win overwhelmingly with seven million, eight million very, very high votes. So it, that is a possibility. Now, how real is it? Well, Maduro really is in a bad situation. He um, did not perform well. He probably is having problems as we talked inside his, his uh, not only his party, but the alliances, the parties inside Chavismo. Because one of the things that he had to demonstrate in this election is that he was the, he was the successor, the successful successor of Chavez, which he did not demonstrate. So 
probably there are many people inside this alliance and these parties that say, maybe it's, it's me, you know, some of these governors or some of the leaders in the party. And uh, I'm sure that the, there's discontent and problems inside Chavismo. So he is in a fragile situation inside his alliance and, of course, vis-a-vis -vis the opposition, too. When you are weak, I think what we are seeing in these days with, with uh, Maduro, he has become very radical. And I think it is a sign of his weakness. I think um, instead of opening the door, which I think was the message in the elections of the, of the people, he has closed the door. <laughs> no. And if he continues, we have, to, we have to wait. I think politically we have to wait to see if this is a first reaction that is going to be accompanied afterwards with some other kinds of reactions. But if he continues to, to, to close the door to any time of conversation inside his alliance and outside, I think he is heading to big trouble because he is not President Chavez. He does not have the strength. He demonstrated that he did not have the strength to, to be uh, the legitimate successor. At least there is doubts about Chavismo without Chavez, as the economist said, because Chavez died March the 5th, and this is April the 14th, and they lost 11 points average in the election. So there is a lot of, of, of problems there. Mm, what was the other thing? Well, maybe you wanted to clarify your other question? I, I, I got it. I got oh, it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The other one was about if, since Capriles is a sitting governor, and if he loses this, the vote in the end after the final analysis, um, would the, could there be retribution against him? I think the, there are two sources of pressure that could be brought to bear because he would he would be able to go back to the governorship. He took a leave from the governorship to run for president, so he he'll go back to finish out the term, which he just. Uh, started um, after the vote in last December. He ran for president in October, had taken a leave from his governorship, then went back to the governorship and ran for, they happened to have governor's elections in December, so he was re-elected as governor, then took a leave for this election, <laughs> so then he would go back. <laughs> so he's been in and out. Um, the, the central government transfers a lot of the financing to the governors and to the mayors. And that has been, in fact, one of the complaints, particularly by opposition governors, but by all, all the governors as well, that not all of the financing that they uh, were expecting has come through. So that, that could be one source to sort of squeeze the financing. Okay. The other would be um, what, has, what some government ministers have already been saying this week is that there could be some judicial suits brought against Capriles in his current situation, as well as some of the other members of his campaign, uh, they have been um, saying that they are generating violence in the country. And so it's possible that they could be brought some kind of judicial action uh, against them for that. We had a couple of questions related to this, and thank you for WABE. We all love WABE. Related <laughs> very much to the question about the, the, the opposition. So just from the website, I, I was asked to raise Margarita with you. What political strategy would you recommend for the opposition in the days ahead? Yes. Well, I think um, uh, the concern about this um, petition that has been rejected by the government to count again the votes is I can understand it, 
as, as a way that since the margin was so narrow, maybe in, in any traditional democracy that would have been logic to us to, to count again and, uh, and probably the government would have counted again with no problem. Actually in Venezuela, usually we have elections in the universities in the, in the, in the unions and all that and when the, the elections are tight, we count again. But this is not a government, a traditional government or, or a very democratic government in this, in this sense. So I think they should move on. I think they should move on. I think that uh, they have uh, shown in this election that they are strong. They have sh I think that, the, that what was shown in this election is that the Venezuelans are asking for alternability, that they are asking to go beyond the polarization. I think that's the message that the, that, uh, that, the, 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 that the vote brought. And I think that we saw, I can understand what I think Barrington Moore in a very classic book of the mm -hmm. 60s called Moral Indignation of the Opposition because it was so unfair, the elections, because the government used the media, used the money, used uh, everything in its favor to win those elections. I can understand that they are angry, uh, that there is a moral indignation there that has put people to the streets. But I think that you have to continue struggling that if the government will not count, that the, uh, the National Electoral Council, which is so subordinated to the national executive, has refused to count. So it has refused to count. There's no legal right, there's no oblig legal obligation for them to count. So uh, you have to move on and try to continue to struggle in other ways. I think I would recommend that. If they, if they ask me, you know, <laughs> that move on. There are many, you have to be creative, you have to resist, you have to have your people together, and you have to wait the next opportunity and uh, try to do some other kinds of struggling and resistance and try to open other doors. But uh, to not get stuck there, because I remember the experience of Mexico, for example, with um, Lopez Obrador. That happened to Lopez Obrador in six years ago. And he did not recognize and did not recognize. He paralyzed the city of Mexico. And he lost a lot of people because of that. And he never recovered completely from that, uh, from that strategy. The, the Venezuelans in Georgia who asked that question had a related one that we can do very briefly, but is that if, 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 um, if the opposition was locked up into jail, if, if, if uh, Capriles was put in jail, that would cause an outrage among the human rights defenders, presumably, and I think what you're saying is don't go down that road if you were Maduro. Yeah. I think, yeah, because I, you know, what I said before, I think Maduro's reacting uh, out of weakness now. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. don't think that it's going to get him stronger. He may become more authoritarian, but he's not going to be more legitimate if he, if he goes down the, the, in that, that road. That would be bad. <laughs> but I would just, I want to just yes, add please. to that, because there, there are some other opportunities coming up, and one of them are elections for mayors mm -hmm. that is coming this fall. And so that's the next opportunity for the opposition to sort of try to build on the strength that they showed this time. Yes. And to focus on um, pushing for, pressing for changes to make the election conditions, particularly the campaign conditions, mm -hmm. more equitable so that they'll be more competitive in that that's sense. So that, that would be the next thing. But I, th I think what we're seeing right now is two things. One is they're um, kind of showing their strength uh, by their protests in the street, putting people in the street, and the other is asking for dialogue and asking to be consulted because what I 
see happening this moment. And part of the reason why there's this conflict right now that has got to be overcome is that both sides want to be recognized by the other. The government wants to be recognized as the legitimate winners of this mm -hmm. vote, mm -hmm. using voting machines that have never been found mm -hmm. to show any problems or any fraud in Venezuela. So they say, recognize me as the, as the opposition, as the, as the legitimate gover government, which so far has not happened, of course, because they're filing these complaints. The opposition wants to be recognized as, look, we're half of the country. You need to take this into account. Not necessarily to be a co-government or a coalition government, joint government, but at least to give us the recognition that we are Venezuelans too and we deserve to be consulted and to participate in, for example, the, their Congress, the National Assembly, to have uh, positions within the various committees and have some leadership positions and this kind of thing. So far, both sides are unwilling to give that recognition, which makes it very difficult to talk and to dialogue until that happens. Thank you, that's a very helpful comment. Yes, over here, please. Hello, um, Kiarina Parisi from Univision. Um, we received a press release from uh, Venezuela Embassy here in Washington. It uh, has some quotes from Carter Center like, uh, from Ms. McCoy, like um, that is uh, the about electronic system is one of the most complete that uh, you have seen in the world. Also about Mr. Carter, um, and I quote from the '92 elections, we have monitored, and I can say that this is the best process in the world. So um, right now, you just arrived from Venezuela. You can. Still say that this is um, one of the most uh, complete system that you have seen, and um, Carter Center recommend the, uh, agree with the recommendation of Enrique Capriles about recounting the votes. Um, yeah, what what I have actually said is that this is one of the most fully automated systems in the world because as I described a little earlier tonight, no other country has all of these steps that are automated um, you know, using technology and electronic steps. No other country in the world does all of that. Now what that does allow is, um, and what it requires is, are a lot of security mechanisms. And so some, for some people it's difficult because compu computers are a black box. And so it's difficult to understand where the security mechanisms are. So there's a lot of suspicion about voting technology, as we've seen here in the United States, a lot of debate about it and controversy. I've talked to a lot of the experts in Venezuela and internationally, um, as well as the, the makers of the voting machines to try to understand all of the security mechanisms in that. And there are a lot of different security mechanisms and a lot of audits and tests of the, of the machines before and after the vote which the opposition, uh, the Capriles campaign, has had uh, their experts participating in all of those. And they have shown confidence and expressed confidence in the voting machines. And as I said, Venezuela has been using them for a number of years. They do verifications afterwards. And in half of the voting precincts or the voting tables, um, the night of the election, they're supposed to have the opportunity for citizens to actually go and watch, verify this comparison of the paper receipts with the electronic vote. 
Um, the public opinion polls show that about two-thirds of the people have confidence in this voting technology. So that's, one, that's what I was referring to. Um, when you talk about the entire electoral process, you have to take into account the campaign conditions, and that's where in the report that uh, we made from the October elections, we identified a lot of issues there um, of inequities in the campaign conditions. Venezuela is the exception in the region, in Latin America, in terms of not providing any public financing for political parties or candidates and no free television access or media access, radio for television and radio ads. All of the other countries have something in that regard. So Venezuela is an exception in that, and that, makes, that means that um, if you have an incumbent in a very powerful state and rich state, like Venezuela's oil state, um, and indefinite re-election, which they approved, as you said, Margarita, then th that incumbent, who can be re-elected several times, has enormous natural advantages of the incumbent, of the incumbent that have to be compensated with regulations to make sure the elections are competitive. And without any kind of public financing, that means then they have to rely on private financing. And that has been where um, the issues have uh, arisen in trying to determine to make sure that no state resources were used. There's no public disclosure of campaign funds, so it's hard for us from the outside to know exactly there. But th th there are challenges there that need to be worked on and improved. So, so Parking uh, Center recommend the uh, recounting of the votes. And to add, uh, my other question is, uh, right now, can Carter Center recognize also uh, Maduro as the, as the president of Venezuela? Well, right now, they're in the middle of, a, uh, of the process, the legal process that's allowed to put forward to put forward the complaints and any irregularities that the opposition has found to the National Election Council, which needs to respond to those complaints in some way. And that's what we're waiting to see. They've just put that forward yesterday, uh, put forward this the, their complaints and the request for this um, audit. Uh, and I would call it more of an audit than a recount because a recount sounds like you're counting the ballots and you can you know, change the results. Um, this is an audit of the system where you compare to make sure that the paper receipts confirm. If they find discrepancies, then they've got to deal with that. But as I said, the legal vote's actually the electronic vote. They're, they can also do electronic audits as well. So auditing by counting the paper receipts, auditing by looking at the number of people who have come and signed that they voted uh, that day. These thumbprint machines that I mentioned where they go. You can also count the number of people who came there and sort of check that to make sure. I think that the most transparency you have, um, the more confidence you bring. And if um, such, a, such verification confirmed Maduro's victory, that would certainly give a lot of legitimacy to his vote. But I think that the Election Council will look at the actual complaints and decide what kind of response to give. This, we have time for one more question. You're going to get plenty of chance to talk about elections tomorrow morning, by the way. <laughs> uh, 
Please, the last question here. Hello, my name is Kendra, and I am currently a university student in Washington, D.C. So I'm very interested in the, the youth and the student perspective in Venezuela. So I'm wondering if you could speak to, um, in your experience, what is the, the youth's perspective of the current state of affairs, and also what is their role moving forward um, as the future leaders of tomorrow? I'm going to give you just an anecdote and then let Marguerite give the historical view. <laughs> um, but I'm going to say that when, especially in October, when I was also there for those elections, uh, we focused then actually on just interviewing voters outside the voting place because we were there mm -hmm. as an independent study mission. We didn't have any credentials to go inside. Um, and it was really fascinating talking to the, to the people. And uh, I, I did try to focus on the youth because I was interested in the same questions. And what I found was that, um, and I remember one place in particular, there was a, a group of them standing there and they were obviously friends, they were friendly with each other. So I just kind of tried to feel out their affiliations. And it was clear that they represented and worked in the campaigns for each side, for both sides. So I said, well, what will you do if your guy doesn't win? And what will you do if your guy doesn't win, if the other guy wins? And they said, oh, We'll go on, we, you know. We, we can work, we can work together. So I, I I found this, as you were saying before, the people, a lot of Venezuelans just want the government, and the all the political leadership, to get together and work on their daily problems, you know, the, their trash service and make sure electricity is delivered every day, because <laughs> there have been some shortages of electricity and this kind of thing. So, you know, they they a lot of people have told me that that that's. That's what they want. That doesn't mean they don't follow the ideas, the different visions presented, but they also just want to improve their daily lives. And, and so I find that a lot of people, including these um, you know, young people, um, are tolerant of the various ideas and, 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 and can feel like that they should be able to work and live together. Are you talking about Venezuela or the United States? <laughs> <laughs> Or any other country that we love and yeah. appreciate. Do you yeah, have anything but, to add, uh, Margaret? But the student, the student movement is a political yeah, force, you might yeah, comment on. Yeah. I think that one has to remember this is a very polarized society, that the youth are also very polarized, that um, the government has had part of its policies has been to, to build organizations of all kinds, to, to have a, a fabric, a social fabric that that could support the Bolivarian Revolution. And so we have a revolutionary uh, youth and we have an opposition youth. And both of them are, I would say, pretty strong. I would even think that maybe the opposition has, it, it has played a very important role, the youth in the, in the comeback and the strengthening of the opposition in the recent years. There was an appearance of the student movement Surprisingly, in 2007, when uh, one of the most important TV channels of Venezuela was closed by the government, was they, they, they did not uh, uh, renovate the concession of Radio Caracas Televisión, and that night spared riots in the cities and, pro and protests by the youth. And that youth was very important in the defeat of Chavez in 2007. And since then on, I give a lot of workshops to candidates in the lo local level about politics and so, and I quite, kind of be amazed by the, the political vocation that some of these people have, because I think politics is really a tough job. But when I see that everybody's so enthusiastic about that, 
And I think it has to do with the politicization also of Venezuela. The, there, there are a lot of youth there uh, struggling and, and, and fighting on, in both sides. But I think for the opposition, it has been very, very important to bring out fresh leadership from the, from the student movement. This is a very long tradition in Venezuela. I think it is a tradition in Latin America. Uh, when change comes, usually it begins within a student movement. It happened in Venezuela in 1928 when the AD parties, the leader, the juvenile leaders, will become afterwards the founders of the most important parties of the country. It happened again in 1957, 1958, when, when the, the, the last dictatorship of Venezuela was overthrown. The student movement was very important. It happened in the 90s with, um, with the political crisis that we had, actually. We have ministers today, like Elias Howard, that you were talking about. He used to go every Thursday to the plaza to, the plaza to burn tires and things like that. He was part of the student movement of that time. The same as Jorge Rodriguez. The, the student movement in Latin America, maybe because education is so important for leadership, usually brings out the, leader, the new leadership of the, the, of the next generation. And we are seeing this today. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you very much. And uh, we just have a couple of minutes uh, uh, left, so I'd like to thank you. And I'd like uh, Professor McCoy, if she has one or two final words to advise Barack Obama if he called you and said, <laughs> what should I do about Venezuela? Venezuela. Uh, oh. You only have 30 seconds to tell him anyway because he's a busy guy. <laughs> I would say be patient. Be patient and let them work through this obviously work through finally resolving the complaints about the election, but let them work through this sort of um, transition to a, the, the new leadership and work out the internal issues, uh, and then try to begin new discussions again, because there will be a moment. Good. I'm, I'm confident there will be. And keep your eye on the young people. That's always a good piece of advice. Um, uh, thank you all so much for coming. I, I know we have an early start tomorrow with my health colleagues, and then uh, we talk a bit more about the peace programs. And you've been uh, a, a most uh, a pleasant audience to have to uh, watch and to listen to. I hope you found um, Margarita and Jennifer uh, enlightening, as I did. And uh, uh, thank you all for coming. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.